You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast and the last one for 2023. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, the EV Focus, the Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me as usual, as he has all year for many years, is uh, ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well and congratulations for making it through the year. Charles, I think uh, all of us, as usual in Australia, look forward to the end of the year, which always seems to be very hectic. Uh, but we have gone out with in shining light, and we have a, a terrific interview this week. To, to uh, don't we? Well, we do. Yes. Look, the, um, the the end of the week, and particularly the end of the year, is usually a time for people to bring out their dirty washing, but also their clean washing. And um, all of that clean washing is a very fascinating in-depth report from uh, the Australian Energy Market Operator. It's Draft 2024 Integrated System Plan, which is essentially its 30-year blueprint. Um, Of course, um, subject to great interest by everyone um, interested in the energy transition and uh, really since it made its first appearance um, about six years ago, um, the only planning document that we've had that actually is meaningful. Anyway... As we did last year, um, we are interviewing again Meryn York. She is the head of system design for AEMO and the person ultimately responsible for putting together the 2024 draft integrated system plan. And um, we talked to her this week. Let's have a listen. Meryn York, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast and um, welcome back, I should say. Thank you so much, Giles. It's a pleasure to be here. Last week, you have uh, released, or AEMO has released, the Draft 2024 Integrated System Plan. Um, This is your 30-year blueprint um, for the future of the grid. You're updating it every two years. Um, The draft was released last week. It's a monumental piece of work, and it's probably the only plan or blueprint that um, we have. So what sort of struck you as the big changes? Um, I've got a few ideas about what sort of struck me, but what struck you as the biggest changes in the last two years uh, or maybe something that really you found quite surprising? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Giles. The outcome from all of the work that we've done in preparing for this draft ISP, where we're three quarters of the way through our planning cycle, uh, the thing that I guess is really key is the is actually the level of consistency in the outcome of the plan. So while on the one hand there's a, there are quite a few things that have changed, um, the outcome from the plan is actually quite consistent despite all of that. And so I think one of the really biggest things that's changed since the last plan is the clarity of some of the input assumptions that we make in terms of government policy. So we now have all governments setting net zero by 2050 targets. We have the Powering Australia plan, 82% renewable energy by 2030, of course, 43% emission reduction, um, a bunch of other things across all of the jurisdictions that make up the NEM, such that we have quite clear policy direction, which informs our planning inputs. Uh, But when we've got to the outcome of all of those inputs and all of the analysis that we've done, there's quite a high degree of consistency between this plan and the previous plan, which I think is quite a good outcome because it means that things aren't changing around all over the place uh, and we can get on with it. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? Is that sort of by the technologies that are available or the necessity to actually sort of um, sort of redo the grid? Because one of, one of the major things, and I guess that's the one that attracted most headlines, is your prediction that the coal-fired generators are going to be leaving the grid five years earlier than what was assumed two years ago. So maybe you could probably touch on that and, and, and why you think that's going to happen. And I guess a second part of that question, or might even be a separate question, is that there's a lot of talk out there from the naysayers and saying, well, you can't do that. You guys modelled 82% renewables 
but you can't do that. What in the last two years has sort of confirmed to you that actually we can do that and we must and we will? Well, that's a good question too. And so it really goes to the design of the integrated system plan and the way in which we formulate the plan. Um, So we deliberately do not include uh, build limits or supply chain limitations uh, or or things of that nature into the plan, particularly on the supply side. Uh, So what that means is that if we want to uh, if if we want to get to net zero by 2050 and we want to meet the uh, carbon budgets that are in built into the scenarios that we have, so step change being the most likely, progressive change being quite similar and then a, a much stronger decarbonisation limitation in the in the green energy exports, if we want to meet those things, what the ISP does is show what we need to do to get there rather than be limited by, uh, I don't know, a maximum supply side gigawatts that could be installed or, or anything of that nature. So we actually deliberately don't put those limitations in because it's a planning document that is really trying to say, if you want to get to these outcomes, whether it's temperature, limita- temperature rise limitation or net zero by 2050 or all of that combination of things, then we're really trying to say, this is the least cost way to get there. And, but I guess in a way that you do have a limit because you have forecast that the coal-fired generators are likely to want to, at least want to, leave the grid five years earlier than planned. What's driving that? Well, what we model in the ISP is that range of carbon limitations uh, across our three scenarios. So the step change scenario has a a particular level of uh, carbon that can be emitted from the energy system over the the period out to 2050. Uh, And what we will do is look for the least cost way to deliver to that amount of carbon emissions that have been applied in that scenario. And so whether that's uh, closing uh, coal earlier, whether that's uh, gas generation whether it's other forms of supply-side response, uh, that's what we really focus on in trying to make sure that we're clear on if you want to do these things, this is the least cost way to get from where we are to where we need to be to meet those objectives. Mm. Just just, I'll hand over to David there. I just want to clarify something, though. But from understanding from the conversation and some of the the, the work that was presented in AIMA was that this seemed to be not necessarily carbon budget-driven result, but the fact that the coal-fired generators are finding it increasingly hard. They're getting old, they're getting unreliable, their fuel costs are going up, they're finding it really hard to compete in a grid which is transitioning quite quickly to renewables. So I'm just maybe just maybe clarify to what extent is it a carbon budget thing, is it to what extent that an old clunkers thing? It's more driven by the carbon budget than the age of the plant. But we do know that the plant is ageing and that it will retire. What we've modelled, uh, particularly if you look at step change scenario, is is a quite rapid uh, reduction in that coal generation really to meet the carbon budget. And, of course, it's economics as well. There'll be a missing money uh, kind of thing. Uh, Maren, firstly, I'd like to congratulate again AEMO and the ISP team on producing Uh, such a terrific piece of work. I know I personally work with the output for for, for a lot of the time and uh, uh, it's it's terrific to read and provides a clear blueprint and, you know, I think the last one clearly changed uh, the community's mind uh, or when they saw each other and uh, the outcomes of the uh, Delphi process. Now, this time around, I asked on LinkedIn uh, if you were speaking to AEMO Uh, what would you want to know? And two themes emerged that I took seriously. One was around gas generation, where a number of people noticed that in figure nine, the actual amount of energy delivered by gas drops off very sharply in the modelling, and I understand about modelling artefacts, between 2025 and 2032. And so uh, firstly, I wanted to check that uh, we're we're all reading that uh, data correctly, and that is the modelling outcome. 
And secondly, if it is the case that sort of raises questions about the economics of gas generation during that seven or eight years, even though it comes back strongly afterwards because you've got to pay for renting the pipes and, you know, all the fixed costs and stuff. So that was my first question. No, that's a great question. Uh, and gas is particularly something that we want to pe- draw people's attention to, um, particularly the way in which gas will have a very different role in the future than the one that it does now. And it is demonstrated by that chart. So the the columns in that chart is the annual usage of gas in PJs. Um, that does drop off. And a lot of that drop off is really as a result of the generation mix that is coming into the system. So obviously with the 82% renewables target by 2030, we're going to see higher levels of generation, renewable generation coming online than we have in the past. So other parts of the ISP will explain that that lifts from what we currently have been doing historically somewhere around the four gigawatts a year to, you know, there's lots of different ways we can measure that, but it's something of that order to what we will need out to 2030 is about six gigawatts a year of renewable generation to meet that target. And that's a consumption target. Um, And so we won't need as much gas generation uh, as a result of all of that coming on. The other thing on that chart that I think you'll find really interesting, David, is that is the peak usage, the summer maximum day forecast in um, TJs per day, and the shift that we'll see between summer and winter as that goes forward in time. So by the time we get out around the 2040s, we're really using much more in winter than we have relative to summer. And this is gas-powered generation. So this is not domestic consumption of gas. This is the gas that is used in gas-powered generation and what, where that comes from, of course, is the uh, conversion of what is used in gas to electricity, increasing consumption in electricity. And so one of the things we really want to use the ISP analysis to highlight is exactly what you said. The market settings that we currently have for gas may not deliver that investment or operation in gas in the future because it's such a different way in which those plants will need to operate and how they will use the amount of gas or the delivery of gas at different times of the year. So that's actually what we hope that people will take away from this analysis uh, is to start thinking about, well, what's the economic case for these gas-powered generations generators in the future? Where does that gas come from? Is it what we currently refer to as natural gas or will it be other types of gas that will come into the system, whether that's renewable gas or hydrogen or whatever? Yep, that- I spent I spent most of my career thinking about economics of this, that, and the other thing, and so it's a question that comes easily. But the second thing I wanted to come on to, and my third question will actually relate to po- policy settings. Uh, uh, but the second question, the theme that came up through LinkedIn, and one that's very close, I'm thinking about all the time, is I still don't quite feel that AEMO has presented its case or around behind the meter uh, and how it interacts with in front of the meter. I mean, there's this uh, tension, uh, as you guys put it, between uh, AEMO wanting to control everything, uh, and it does, uh, and consumers who don't want to give away control. Um, And I guess the question is around, firstly, do you think tariff settings can achieve the same result? Um, statistically speaking, for very large groups of people, tariffs might be quite effective in my mind versus actually having to switch people off. Uh, and secondly, I guess around that, there's a big forecast for household storage take up, but there's no policy really on a national basis around that. No, that that's a really great question and something that we have particularly tried to provide more information on for consumer energy resources. Um, So whether that's solar PV, whether it's batteries in households, whether it's EV charging and that future that we are all hoping will turn up sooner rather than later where we can get, you know, vehicle to grid uh, and have that uh, useful. Uh, and, And so we have a big chunk of what is consumer energy resources, we've flagged as coordinated. Um, What that does is make sure that that 
consumer resource can help the power system. Um, one Again, one of the things we really want to use the ISP to highlight is how useful that resource can be. Um, but we also need to be making sure that people are aware that it's it's really much more useful if it is coordinated or orchestrated or whatever term people want to use for that. How we get from where we are to having that level of orchestration or coordination, again, is one of those things that we need to keep talking about because if we don't have that, then we'll need to have more utility scale um, storage or other um, sources of supply to replace what would otherwise be orchestrated. And we see that as not making the best use of that fantastic resource that is out there that every household is almost putting in. Um, we want to make sure that we can use that rather than uh, that sits there and there's all that investment and then we have to invest in the equivalent things at utility scale because we're not getting that orchestrated. And that's one of the things we've really tried to surface and, and shift uh, in the way in which we discuss consumer energy resources in this ISP. And we want to actually do a little bit more work on that between the draft and the final. Um, so if people have got input around that, about how we can make that useful, how we can uh, ensure that that comes along, that um, there's other input you know, that we should be taking into account, you know, we'd really like some input on that exact question because it is such a fantastic resource that will not be as fully utilised if we don't have that orchestration. And my, my, my third question is, and I'll note in, com, in passing, that one of the things about the ISP in uh, concert with every other plan that looks at high renewable penetration is that something between 10 and 20% of the energy produced by the system is spilled every year and I have a kind of background issue about particularly with with rooftop or CER about who is going to be spilling their energy and who bears the cost and, and who gets paid for the investment in spilled energy but that that's not what I wanted to ask about what I wanted to ask uh, you Merrin is that um, given the plan and that's all it is in the ISP really uh, uh, and all the policy suite that's out there at the moment, if you could have one policy wish uh, granted to you by, uh, all the, uh, by governments and authorities for Christmas, uh, what would it be? Oh, gosh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, look, I, it, we were just talking about consumer energy resources and there is a high degree of investment that people are making in those uh, resources. Personally, and this is just my personal view, I would really like us to be able to maximise the benefit that everybody gets from that, not just the individual householders who get to offset their bills and you know supply their own energy uh, and help to save the planet. But if we can get that into a place where that's coordinated in a really positive and constructive way, that would be something I think would, would just be great because if we don't do that, then there'll be more investment in other things and that will be not made the best use of. And in some ways from a power system operation point of view and bearing in mind I'm a power system engineer by background, you know, we could also have other challenges in operating the network and the, and the grid and the rest of the supply system together. So I would really like to see that resource really utilised in a way that helps to deliver reliable and secure electricity for everyone because, you know, that's essential for life, for the economy, for everything. So, In handing back to Giles, I'll just note that I guess my wish would be some kind of national policy around household uh, battery support because I do think that that could do more in the short term to reduce these uh, tensions between the household sector uh, and, and, and the utility sector than just about anything else. Uh, uh, if we all had or a lot more batteries at places and, you know, my own theme is that we could have a lot more uh, distributed control and less uh, system security issues if we had more grid forming inverters around the place. But I, I'll hand back to Giles. No, before Giles, if you don't mind, I mean, you're, I'm exactly aligned with you, um, David. If we could get those resources 
at the household level. And, and you mentioned before we want to have control. I, I don't think it, it's quite as simple as that. What we need is predictability to deliver that security of supply. We need to know what's going to happen at any point in time. And, and that's what we're really looking for in terms of operating the power system, which is why the orchestration or coordination is so important. Whether it's just solar PV, whether it's batteries, whether it's vehicle charging, all of that, we need to know what's going to happen, you know, second by second, minute by minute, so that we can make sure we can deliver security of supply, as well as, you know, make make that effective in terms of the, the overall cost for, for delivering the energy transition. So I think we're aligned. <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. Look, one of the remarkable things about the ISP, and if you just go back about five or six years and you, and you, you heard people talking about high levels of renewables, people just go, no, 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 it's never going to happen. It can't possibly happen. can't have more than 50% renewables in the grid, et cetera, et cetera. What you're talking about here is 82% renewables by 2030, going up to 90% renewables, even more, uh, depending on the scenario, and, um, and into the 2030s. Now, I guess it's pretty interesting to note that I think when people talk about renewables and storage on a day-to-day -day basis, we're not so flustered because we kind of understand that, as, as David said, there's, there's spilled energy, there's excess energy, it gets put into batteries and pumped hydro and things like that. From a day-to-day -day point of view, it's probably not a problem. One of the things that's raised in the ISP is the long-duration storage, and I think we're going to hear more of this term dunkelflat, which is the German things for sort of long wind and solar droughts and things like that. Perhaps you could just sort of share exactly how the how AEMO is thinking about addressing this issue, because this is, you know, this is, I guess, it's the perceived weakness of renewables and storage is what do you do when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine for, for weeks on end? Yeah, no, great question. Um, we study dunkel flouters uh, as a sensitivity in our work. We, in this ISP, we've done a lot more work with synthetic weather traces where we manufacture a Ooh, trace. What are and, they? <laughs> <laughs> so what that means is rather than taking historical uh, solar and wind levels of irradiance, we actually can uh, simulate those and apply the same um, uh, low solar irradiance, low wind traces to different days than when they actually occurred. So we can now actually choose how many days of low solar and low wind we want to put into a simulation and in this isp uh, draft isp we've done an extended period of eight days of low solar and wind and seen what that looks like in terms of requirements for storage or flexible gas generation that would be required to support that kind of environment the reason we've selected eight days is that you get high so eight days of high demand and low solar and low and low wind and what that means is that we've ended up not having effectively not having a weekend uh, when we know that the uh, demand is typically less than what it would be on the weekdays um, and so we've really tried to stretch the envelope in terms of how what what do we need in terms of those all important uh, other supporting integration mechanisms that help us use renewable energy to provide that reliable and secure supply, which is, of course, the transmission, linking everything up, the storage, which provides um, supply when the wind and the sun aren't shining, and then some gas-fired generation. And that's where we've, how we've tried to deal with that uh, in this round of the ISP. But again, it's something we need to keep looking at and working on. Uh, and again, another area where we'd really appreciate any feedback from uh, your listeners to make sure that we are studying the things that actually make sense and that we can provide really good quality information, which everyone can have a look at and then provide feedback to us through the consultation process. But that's what we've done to date in this uh, next version, the draft 2024 ISP, but we'll always be looking to to make sure that we're continuing to evolve and improve the studies and the simulations that we do to be better informed. Mm -hmm. And just, um, I mean, you said that uh, before when you're sort of putting together the modelling and things like that, you weren't sort of limited by sort of capacity or, or, or some of the other sort of the boundaries there. Um, 
in reality, though, Australia will be limited in its ability to, well, possibly to, to build transmission lines in time, to get things connected, to source materials, turbines, um, getting social licence, um, getting the policy settings right. Is there a, um, I mean, you model 82% renewables by 2030, do you have like a probability that we'll actually get there or, or we might get close? Well, that's not really the purpose of the ISP. Um, so if we look across our suite of planning documents that we produce, the ISP is set up to say, if you want to get to net zero by 2050, you want to meet these other policies, what's the least cost way to do that? So that's our whole co-optimization of supply, uh, renewable, whether it's renewables, whether it's storage, whether it's generation, uh, whether it's transmission. So that's a co-optimization to say, if you want to do all those things, here's the least cost way to do it. In relation to transmission, we use the currently advised completion dates we get from the transmission businesses. So what is the earliest date that they think they can deliver that transmission? We apply some sensitivity uh, assessments to that to make sure that that plan, really that's testing whether this plan is robust to those types of variations and what might need to change. So that's what the ISP is really setting up to say, this is what you've got to do if you want to get to this place. And then we use the electricity statement of opportunities, so the ESU, really to say this is what's actually happening. So the, the things that are in the central scenario in the ESU is what's actually happening. And then we can start to look at what's the gap in between and provide that information to policymakers or investors or um, other people to say, well, if, if you want to get to this outcome that's in the ISP and you're only here, this is the gap in between that we need to seek to address. And that's really the purpose of the suite of planning documents that we produce. Yeah. And, and, and just to sort of clarify, the ESU is the Electricity Statement of Opportunities, which is what you produce each year, and it's the, it's the shorter 10-year um, outlook. And just before handing it to David, let's like to sort of challenge you with one other question. Um, and usually we're seeing a bit of criticism from AEMO just about the whole concept that renewables and transmission are the lowest COPS option. I mean, uh, I think that the GenCost report Report is coming out um, later on this week, and uh, we'll see what's in that. But in the past, it's sort of made clear that sort of renewables and storage, um, including the network um, upgrades, uh, are the lowest cost. Um, there is a view which is emerging, um, and I only repeat it because it just seems to be repeated more and more that you're kind of fudging the issue on transmission um, in in this assessment. Can you can you respond to those criticisms? Of course. Um, so GenCost has a couple of things in it. It has capital costs for generation and it has uh, also has, you know, what is the outlook of the cost for generation over time? And there's a learning curve that goes with that. So the cost in real terms of generation, particularly solar and wind, is expected to reduce over time. That's what we use in the ISP. We actually use the capital cost of generation and a learning curve over time to indicate what the cost of generation over time will be. We use transmission costs from our transmission cost database and we know they've gone up uh, quite a lot as have generation costs over the last little while just with supply chain shortages and global issues uh, in terms of global inflation. We know they've gone up. And then we're expecting transmission costs will continue to increase slightly over time. So in real terms, uh, we're expecting those to increase slightly over time. And you can see these charts in our ISP as to how we think about the costs of these two different, really different elements. But what we do in the ISP is use those input costs in terms of capital cost, operating costs over time. We don't use the levelised cost of energy, which is also in the gene cost database. And so that's where that view about does it include the integration? If it was only set at one point in time, what's happened to all the costs before then? We don't actually use that at all in the ISP. We do a fully co-optimised least cost outlook, taking into account capital and operating costs. So they're done on a quite different basis. 
in the end, though, uh, Merrin, um, you don't actually report the results of that in the sense that um, you show the uh, the composition of the network, and we talk about the um, uh, NPV of the benefits um, as compared to not building any trans transmission. But I don't actually see explicitly the LCOE. I, I see in the in, when you produce demand forecasts uh, as a prior part, there's a kind of price index. So let me ask: um, Do you have an, a view as to what the sort of long-range price of electricity would be if if we built this system? I'm not asking for. Any, I think forecasting is a stupid business at the best of times, and uh, I'm certainly not holding anyone to anything. Uh, but is it going to produce electricity prices that are comparable to current ones, higher or lower, in your view? Well, we we produce a plan that determines the least cost way to meet the meet the policy settings and the the target in terms of net zero by twenty fifty for the range of carbon budgets that we have in our scenarios. We don't. To your point, we don't convert that into, well, this is what it might mean in terms of the price of electricity. What we're really looking for is this is the least cost way. If this is what you want to do, that should translate into the least cost of electricity delivered to consumers. But we don't actually calculate an electricity price in, no, as part of the ISP. But one could see how uh, that number would be seized on if it was reported uh, and um, I want to come back and also ask about the carbon objective and how uh, and how that could be incorporated in the final version if we had a social a price for carbon a social cost or use the European price or something. But before I get there, your if I might call if I might say I don't with, without putting any colour on it, someone who's been in the system a long time, a, a, a tra traditional electricity person, if I might say that. Uh, uh, and, and you in charge of the ISP and sort of have, I mean, what do you actually think of the outcome, you know, independently of how AMO thinks about it? But if you're an outside person looking at it, are, are you happy with the system that we would turn up with? Do you think it really is the best? Well, I think it's the least cost way to get there if you want to meet these objectives, um, which is what we're tasked to do, um, is to show what is the least cost way to get to net zero by 2050? There's a bunch of policy settings which we adopt. And I, I think the, um, the work that the team does and the analysis that they do, like you said, I'm more from a tra traditional. Um, I've been around, as you say, for quite a while. So, you know, I started my career, I suppose, in a very different place. But the type of modelling that the team does in terms of that co-optimisation between supply side transmission, storage, um, backup generation, you know, it, it's quite remarkable, uh, the work that goes into that and the analysis that they've done. And so I do think, um, given what we're trying to show how you get to this outcome, that this is the least cost plan to get there, I'm very confident that that's the case. And if we just go on to the carbon uh, scale of side of things, um, we could you could incorporate and the uh, the plan the document talks about incorporating a a cost of carbon. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and uh, how what where you would look to to get a to get a carbon. Would that come from the net zero authority or or somewhere else? Um, one thing that's clear is that we won't be setting that. Um, we will use a figure if that is provided to us from whoever is charged with setting that figure, but we will not be determining a figure to use in this analysis ourselves. And it's something as we go forward to the next round of the ISP, uh, the 2026 ISP, how that figure on um, the value of, carb of emissions, carbon emissions, how that how that, where that value is set and how it's used will obviously influence the next 2026 ISP. And once we find out what that is and how it's going to be set, maybe whether somebody else is actually saying this is the carbon budget we want to use 
um, in some kind of policy context, you know, we'll need to turn our minds to what that means for the 2026 ISP. And we're already starting to think about that so that we can get on the front foot because if that does change, that would be quite a big change in terms of the scenario setup. And we'd want to give people plenty of opportunity to think about what that changes to in terms of the dimensions of the scenarios and what that might mean in terms of, you know, how it influences the plan. But yeah, yeah more, that, more to play that, out there. My, my kind of final question, because I appreciate time, time is tight and, and, as I said, I think I'll be looking at the ISP for a lot more <laughs> as, as we go forward. But I wanted to ask, since the last ISP, of course, we've had the Victorian offshore wind uh, policy confirmed. And in Queensland, we've had the Energy and Jobs Plan, particularly with its focus on um, expensive, let's be honest, uh, large-scale pumped hydro, as opposed to the more distributed storage approach that the earlier version of the ISP adopted, are you able to talk, I mean, you have to incorporate those policies into the ISP. I mean, if there is a policy, it gets incorporated. But does that change the system cost or outcome? Or can you talk about that a little bit about it? So the way in which we do that in the ISP is exactly as you described, David, that those policies, if they're, if they've met the, you know, what we would describe as uh, either committed or anticipated status, and we have a set of five criteria that we judge that against. If they meet all five, it's committed. If they meet three of the five, it's anticipated. They are used as an input. So those uh, costs then are not included in the economic analysis in terms of um, those committed and anticipated projects. Uh, what we include in our uh, optimization, co-optimization and uh, cost analysis is everything from there going forward. So if it's already uh, committed or anticipated, it's an input. If it's something that is then co-optimised through our set of uh, analysis, then that is included in the co-optimisation and the relative costs that will be required to deliver to that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm glad. I, I sort of read that, but I need to hear it, hear you say it. So, I mean, like the cost of Barumba, for instance, uh, not picking on it particularly, is not part of the costs that are considered because uh, because it's already a, a committed or anticipated project. That's right. The Barumba pumped hydro meets the anticipated criteria. We have um, looked at how it's connected into the grid, and so that is part of you know what we've worked out through the co-optimization. But the cost of Barumba itself is not. Charles, back to you. Sorry. No, that's okay. Look, uh, one final question for me, and thank you very much for your time, Merrin. Um, just looking at the, um, it was interesting to see that the two uh, sort of core scenarios, uh, step change and progressive change, essentially the same. It really just sort of focuses on, the, I guess, the pace of economic growth in the 2030s, but it's sort of, you know, basically the same principle, massive switch to renewables in the near term, and then sort of depending on what happens in the next decade. Um, fascinating to see the green energy exports um, scenario, which is just of, a, of another scale. Basically, and this, of course, is what Australia's stated policy goal is, and and, and many of the people in the business. Um, let's be a renewable energy superpower. Um, whether it's laying cables, putting it in ships as green ammonia, or probably less likely now green hydrogen, or exporting green products like, such as green metals and green iron and things like that. Um, it's really quite an extraordinary. Um, uh, forecast when you see those graphs and the green energy export graph just sort of disappears up into the sky with the amount of the sheer scale of the gigawatt capacity. I mean, it, it looks like science fiction, but um, but it isn't. Well, I guess when you're doing a plan like the ISP, what we really want to do is make sure that what comes out of it is robust against a range of futures because you know, forecasting. Inevitably, we don't land on any one of these scenarios. That's the reality to the point David made before. So what we want to do, though, is make sure that we've considered not just, you know, something down the middle, but we've considered the bookends. So something that's much faster in terms of decarbonisation and leaning into some of the stated ambition to be a, a hydrogen exporter, uh, but also that slower change. So while... Some of progressive change is 
relatively the same. So they both get to 82% renewables, uh, step change and progressive change. Uh, the annual consumption by 2050 of progressive change is considerably less than in step change. And so that is, of course, to your point, Giles, driven by lower economic growth, but lower everything. It's you know less uh, opportunity for some of that decarbonisation to happen through uh, conversion to electricity, whether that's gas or transport. And so a lot of things are on a slower scale. Um, and we're really trying to use those two outlier scenarios to test the robustness of the plan. And that's, of course, what you do in scenario-based planning. You're not saying any of these are what's actually going to happen. You're just using them to make sure that you've tested and pushed and pulled and made sure that whatever it is that you're actually committing to at this point in time is going to be robust for the future. And then, of course, we do it again in a couple of years' time and we test again. Uh, and that's the nature of planning to make sure that we're doing things that make sense and that are going to be delivering benefits over the longer term. Okay, well, look, we could probably get this conversation going a lot longer, um, particularly about some of the households and, and the forecasts of the, the changes in their consumption and um, how much they will use as electrification happens and uh, how much they'll be drawing down from the grid, which is actually not much different. But And many, um, and many other good topics, but... Yes, but look, um, Mary, look, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, um, we really do appreciate your time and um, all the best for the holiday season and the new year. And we look forward to seeing the, uh, the final version. Thank you very much, Giles and David. And please, everybody, have a look at this. We're excited to put this out, but we're also really excited to get feedback from people on the plan. We know that we can provide more information or tweak things and, and make it even more useful going forward because we want to make the ISP as useful as possible to everyone that's involved in the energy transition so we can get it right. Thanks very much for having me. No worries. Thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, Marion York, the Head of System Design at AEMO and responsible for the draft 2024 Integrated System Plan. Um, David, judging from your comments, you're quite impressed with this document. Um, although we should always remember, um, despite getting very excited by some of the figures, that it is just modelling. It is just modelling and no one actually expects the outcome of it to be uh, exactly in line with the forecasts. Uh, the thing I've always tried to stress to people about the integrated system plan is its somewhat uh, unintentional role in life has been to, uh, that it's been accepted by the electricity industry stakeholders as being both achievable in some sense, like maybe a bit later than, than what it says, but basically that it, it will, the plan will work uh, and it's the best plan available, more or less. Now, that in itself is it was a turning point in the whole industry uh, with the 2022 uh, ISP, which for the first time, you know, laid out formally how we can decarbonise the electricity system, and that's the uh, basis for decarbonising the whole of Australia. And 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 this ISP really just continues that, uh, and almost puts it a bit on steroids. Uh, and, and so that's it's it's a wonderful achievement. It, it's it's kind of ironic in a way because I suppose when the 2022 ISP came out and the most popular scenario was step change, which sort of modelled an 82% uh, renewable share in the grid by 2030, and then that became federal government policy, and now that is a major input. So it's almost as though it, it is written 82% renewables, but I guess the, the the role of the ISP in this case is saying, well, if we still want to get there, then this is what you're going to have to do. And top of the list of that is getting that transmission built, but also sorting out the supply chains, the uh, skilled labour lay force and labour force and social licence. Um, David, Charles, you, you know, as, as 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 the year has gone on, I've become more relaxed about the transmission. I feel I'm uh, leading the the consensus here, or in front of consensus, and I may still be wrong, but to me, it looks like things like HumeLink and the transmission to Arana Zone in New South Wales, uh, one transmission line in Victoria, and even the New England transmission line, uh, they are going to get done. And so, I think, is the southern Queensland part of it. Once you uh, accept that those transmission lines will actually be built, 
then I think myself, it's not actually that hard to buy wind turbines or solar panels at the moment. We've always managed the labour resources. The, the remaining issue is in the hands of the planning departments. Uh, and that, I think, is, it's, it's, that's a fixable issue as well, although I do think we need to change the way some of the stuff works. It shouldn't be that easy. And we've discussed this before, but the news uh, is that we've actually seen two or three uh, projects approved ahead of Christmas, haven't we, in New South Wales? We have actually um, two directly, um, two solar farms, one in the New England region, um, the Oxley Solar Farm, one further south in the Riverina region, um, and also the Hills of Gold uh, wind farm, which was heavily contested um, in the New England region, um, has made it through the planning department, is now referred to the Independent Planning Commission. So these are good signs. If Hills of Gold wind farm is actually approved, it'll be the first one, or just the second in five years, and the first one to be approved since 2021, when the Ungula solar farm, wind farm, sorry, um, and I think that's the way you pronounce it, you might be able to correct me there, David, um, now owned by Squadron Energy was um, approved um, and uh, that wind farm has surfaced in the news again this week which I think is the next thing we're going to talk about which is the New South Wales generation and long duration auctions and some really quite interesting results here uh, the 450 megawatt Ungula wind farm um, out, Angular it? maybe or Angular jungle. maybe okay hmm. Angular wind farm that got approved a Kalkan, uh, the Kalkan solar farm from uh, Neon Australia also got up that's been in the pipeline for a while and uh, Neon shows an extraordinary ability to, to, to win tenders and auctions and sign contracts with governments and we also saw three quite landmark um, battery projects long duration lithium iron phosphate batteries including one 225 275 megawatts and 2,200 megawatt hours, I think, up in Richmond South of Casino, uh, being built by Arc Energy um, of Korea Zinc Ownership, um, and another one um, in near Meriwa, um, just in the Upper Hunter, um, a smaller one. So some really, and, and of course the Broken Hill compressed air storage thing. So David, you've had a look at a bit of the um, the prices and what they uh, what they mean. Have you worked out whether the people of New South Wales are getting a good deal out of this? I, I haven't really worked that out, but I, I think um, uh, what surprises me is to see three eight-hour batteries getting up in the first two storage tenders that, that uh, New South Wales government has uh, allocated or, or the trustee has allocated. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when we were all talking about one and one and a half and two-hour batteries, and all of a sudden, not just four hours, but we seem to have skipped the four hours and <laughs> yes. gone straight to eight hours. It's really quite astonishing. It is quite astonishing. I'm not really too sure. Look, I haven't really been sort of privy to the models and working out how they're actually making this work. Um, but it doesn't seem like, I mean, let's take that, um, the really big casino battery. Um, um, what's it called? Myrtle Creek battery being built by Arc Energy. I mean, that's a $1.3 billion project. As far as I can work out, the maximum amount it can get through the annuity cap being offered through the long duration tender is about $40 million a year. Now, that's not going to pay for that battery. So it must obviously see... Um, an economic case um, for this thing working. Uh, absolutely. And as we've discussed before, uh, there is a huge need for uh, battery-style storage. Uh, I have personally long believed that uh, batteries, as the cost comes down, uh, and long-duration batteries have lower unit costs. So we saw the Liddell battery, which I think uh, is, what was that, 500 megawatts for two hours, and if you that works out at uh, um, about one and a point five billion from memory, so it may be that uh, that one in Richmond Valley is a bit more than one point three. But the point I was trying to get to is that because you need less inverters, uh, less uh, balance of system stuff, uh, basically longer duration batteries are cheaper on a unit cost basis on per megawatt hour than shorter duration ones. Uh, but they need to be because the marginal revenue you get out of that fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth hour falls off pretty sharply. If you look at the daily uh, price curve, you really only get a couple of hours in the average afternoon or three or four hours at most uh, to, to make your return. Now, another thing that's going to show up when we look at it, I mean, so in total, the thing about batteries across the NEM, right now there's about 1.3 
uh, gigawatts of utility batteries actually operating, most of which is devoted to providing frequency control uh, of what we call it ancillary services, but it's really frequency control is what it does a lot of the time. And so they haven't really made much impact on the peak prices or overall, and you have to impact peak prices to impact overall electricity prices. Uh, and uh, in fact, batteries have been charging more than um, gas on average uh, for various reasons. But we're now going to treble. What? That's a bit rude. It is a bit rude, isn't it? But we're now <laughs> going to see a trebling, effectively, by 2025 of the total battery capacity in the NEM. It's going to go up to five gigawatts. At which point, it'll it'll probably be contributing more every day. Uh, than gas and uh, getting up towards what hydro contributes, even though hydro is providing baseload power in Tasmania. So, I mean, I do expect that these batteries are going to make a big impact on overall electricity prices. That's the point I'm trying to get to. And when they do that, they're going to drive some coal out of the system and then prices are going to go up again. So it's, uh, we're on the roundabout. On the roundabout. Yeah, we actually wrote a piece um, last week, I think, just observing that, um, as you point out, the gas is, is, is taking a growing share of the evening peak. So on the open NEM widget, for instance, you're now seeing sort of big splotches of blue. And on occasions, I think the battery storage share of peak demand in South Australia of an evening, for, you know, for short periods is about 20%. So, you know, if you think that a couple of years ago it was zero um, and not forecast to be much more than zero, um, the fact that it's got to 20% is quite interesting and there's more big batteries on the way in that state as well so we're probably as you say we'll, we'll see a Giles time. the NEM is incredibly exciting we are the living proof I mean Malcolm Turnbull talked about this experiment in South Australia forget South Australia we the NEM are, are proof of concept of how to decarbonize uh, a large electricity grid and make solar and batteries and, and, and wind actually work to be globally competitive it's actually happening <laughs> we the name. I, I I can feel the start of a football style song an anthem happening there. But um, no, you're quite right. It's um it is quite remarkable. And when you think back five or ten years when we when well it's five years ago when we started doing this podcast. I mean a lot of what um we're talking about now would have seemed sort of you know slightly crazy at the time, but um hopeful. Um but here we are. Um David, we should probably sort of get round to wrapping up, I think. Um just to point out that oh, there's a couple so, something that's still slightly crazy in my opinion. And and, you know, one of the jobs you and I do is to try and filter out the really crazy stuff from the only uh, optimistic stuff. <laughs> and I think one of the things that's been crazy was the hydrogen hype that we went through a year or two ago. And there will be a role for hydrogen eventually. But I was interested to observe that the UK hydrogen allocation round one strike price was approximately sterling nine fifty. Per kilogram. Uh, now, if you work that out, uh, that comes to something like uh, 160 Aussie dollars, maybe, uh, per gigajoule, if you were going to, trying to compare it with the gas price. And I don't think you're going to be making too much money uh, when you're paying $160 a gigajoule. So, you know, it's going to need a lot of support for a while yet. Yes, and I think it's true to say, um, as we kind of revealed in our, in, uh, in our interview with Alan Finkel a while ago, that um, um, a lot of the hydrogen hopium has, has died down and has now been sort of very much sort of focused on things that um, are, are likely real and, and, and more realistic. So, you know, forget about hydrogen cars, you can probably forget about hydrogen trucks, you can probably forget about sort of exporting sort of hydrogen per se. It may be exported as green ammonia. Um, and but the I, applications I, I, in, in fertilizer and other industrial purposes, but um, very useful, so, but not quite yes. as huge as one, as, as one assumed. Yeah, I think so, Giles. I think so. The only thing is that that UK price may well reflect the cost of renewable energy in the UK to a large extent. And I have certainly haven't done the work, but it may be that that is so expensive relative to what hydrogen would cost in Australia that perhaps uh, uh, green hydrogen, that perhaps we could uh, justify the high transport costs after all. There may be actually some optimism in, the, in that number for us. We'll have to wait well, and see. Well I, well, I guess one of the reasons why Australia was considered a place to, to make green hydrogen was because we should, in principle, have low wind and solar production costs, um, particularly at scale. 
Um, David, it's been another fantastic year. Um, look, great support from our listeners. Um, fan fantastic um, uh, statistics. Um, quite similar to last year, nearly a million downloads over the year. So we're really very thankful to everyone who who listens in, and and we, and we really do appreciate sort of turning up at conferences and other places and and, and hearing um, people sort of saying, "Oh, listen to the podcast, and it's great, and keep going." And um, and uh, that does keep us going. And uh, we do have to thank our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon, for their um, ongoing support. David, any final reflections on 2023, or if, are you going to make a bold prediction for 2024? Uh, bold prediction? I was hoping you were going to ask me to tell a joke, but I, clearly I'm not going to get <laughs> well, that you invitation. you can if you want. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I don't, my bold prediction is that we'll see a few more batteries yet and that uh, futures prices in the out years will start to come down. Uh, I'm continuing to keep a close eye on Queensland uh, myself to see how things, their plans develop. And we should, I'm not sure if it's next year, but some of the new wind farms uh, that have been built there might start to come online. And I, my bold prediction is that planning departments will start to approve projects more quickly because uh, there's a very old rule in markets that if something should happen, it probably will happen. And we need those planning departments to be uh, part, of the, part of the process, part of the team and to get on, to get on the bus, the electric bus that is. Planning departments, I trust you are listening and um, and the minister's responsible for them as well. Um, perhaps go down and take them a copy of this broadcast and suggest they listen to it. Um, David, thank you very much for your support. Thanks again to all our listeners out there. Thanks to our sponsors once again. Thanks to the producers of this podcast. Um, Giles, and... Giles, sorry. I haven't heard your bold prediction for next year. Oh, look, this... <laughs> <laughs> it, this this transition will continue merrily along. Um, I think we're going to see some quite remarkable things, I think, particularly in electrification and the development of consumer resources. I think, as you say, we're going to see a lot of storage and some very exciting things. We're going to see more times when we're getting to levels of renewables that we never thought possible, um, possibly getting close to 100% on the main grid and certainly well over 100% in South Australia. Unfortunately, we're also going to have to deal with the mainstream media and the right-wing think tanks and the conservative coalition's absolute obsession with nuclear. Now, most people listening to this podcast probably agree that nuclear doesn't make much sense for Australia on any sort of um, parameter, but it is being pushed um, at an extraordinary level on sort of social media, in conservative media, by think tanks, and we haven't heard the end of it. So um, that is something that the industry is going to have to deal with because... Um, um, it could get um, it could complicate things. Anyway, I think technology will win out in the end. Um, I just have one other see. quick fi final piece of news. Uh, this week we saw that Origin Energy invested uh, some more in Octopus uh, Energy, and the implied valuation, as it happens, was right around the level that we we forecast it would be in the independent experts report. So there's really just says that this is happening as expected and does, certainly doesn't provide any upside to the takeover. But that's not what I wanted to mention. The point is, if Origin goes out and spends $500 million buying more of Octopus, it's probably a very good decision for Origin shareholders, but it's $500 million that isn't going to be available to spend on the Australian transition. That's, uh, that's what I would say. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point because I think the sort of the shooting down of that deal was one of the biggest disappointments, I think, of the past year but we shall see what happens with the capacity investment scheme and uh, we very much look forward to getting federal energy minister chris bowen on the podcast in the new year to explain exactly how that might work um because that's going to be critically important david it's been an absolute pleasure all the best for the holidays in the season um thanks to you once again as i was trying to say before um thanks to sam our producer and Anne also for helping out uh, particularly with the voiceovers and some also post-production work and um we will be back probably around about the end of january to resume the energy insiders podcast for 2024 bye for now energy insiders was brought to you by evergen 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.